Vaccines have been described as one of the greatest medical advances in history. Yet in some segments of our population, the view on vaccines has shifted from life-saving invention to a potential vehicle for causing more harm than good to our young patients, particularly those who stand to benefit most from the immunizations. What has led to this change in perception about vaccines? And how can physicians best counsel patients who harbor these concerns? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Immunology. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. Paul Offit, Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Offit. Thank you. Now, you're a former member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP, to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Can you tell us how the public reacted to vaccines when they were first introduced? When vaccines were first introduced, meaning the first vaccine, the smallpox vaccine? Yes. All right. Well, so the smallpox vaccine was introduced in the late 1700s by Edward Jenner. It became that technique of giving essentially a cow, what we now know as a cowpox virus to prevent human smallpox, was translated into many languages by 1804. And by the mid-1800s, it became really pretty much standard care in places like England. It wasn't how, and and the public generally accepted that vaccine until in the mid-1800s when it became essentially mandatory. The so-called poor laws required the people, and generally it was was generally a a poorer group of people, people with less resources, were required to get that vaccine. And when the vaccine was first mandated is when you really saw the first anti-vaccine activity. So mandates, I think, are frankly at the heart of what causes people to be upset about vaccines, the fact that they're required to get them. What happened to vaccine levels, vaccination levels, once the mandates went into place? Well, vaccination levels dramatically increased. And with that, not surprisingly, disease incidents caused by smallpox dramatically decreased. But then if you looked at, at, at you know, sort of groups of people who chose not to vaccinate or who protested vaccines or sort of areas where essentially those laws were lax or were repealed, then you would see an increase in disease rates. So, I mean, it's from the first vaccine and onward, you know, there's a direct correlation between getting vaccinated and not getting a disease. And it's a, it's a uh, phenomenon that's been seen over and over again in history. I hope we don't have to relearn it again. Now, it seems to me that the most recent wave of public resistance of vaccines occurred when there was a thought of a vaccine and autism link. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Sure. In 1998, there was a British gastroenterologist who proposed that the combination of measles, mumps, rubella, or MMR vaccine caused autism. Many epidemiological studies have been done to to show that that wasn't correct. A year later, there was born the notion that thimerosal and ethylmercury-containing preservative in vaccines caused autism. Again, in this case, about six studies were done to show that there was no no link. And now, frankly, thimerosal is out of all vaccines given to the less than six-month-old and remains only in multi-dose vials of the flu vaccine, yet still the rates of autism are, are have been uh, unchanged by that that move. We sort of, I think, morphed to a third hypothesis, which is that children are just receiving too many vaccines too soon, which is a much less testable hypothesis, which is frankly, I think, one of the hallmarks of pseudoscience is just moving to the non-falsifiable, untested hypothesis. And I think that's where we are now. But certainly there's no reason to believe that vaccines 
cause autism. And frankly, there's a lot of, of very good genetic work looking at that sort of the proteins that the particular genes make, particularly having to do with how one nerve cell communicates with another at the synapse. It's very interesting. You just never hear about them because I think the anti-vaccine people have taken the autism story hostage. Did it surprise you that public opinion of vaccines shifted so greatly with the onset of mandates? I mean, how is public opinion of vaccines different from other medical advances, such as antibiotics or something like that? Now, I think we think of prevention in a very different way than treatment. You know, you can understand it at some level. I mean, your children can receive up to 26 inoculations in the first few years of life. They can get five shots at one time. I mean, that com- and combined with the fact that I think most people don't really know what it is that's in that vial and therefore I think are sub- subject to a lot of the myth and misinformation that surrounds vaccines and that they don't see often the diseases that vaccines prevent, I think creates fertile ground for this kind of false concerns or false fears about vaccines. And, and that on t- combined with the notion that you are required to get it, say, for daycare or school entry, I think makes a, uh, for a cauldron, a, a hotbed of, of this kind of resistance. So it's not surprising. I think in many ways we're seeing sort of the natural history of a vaccine program, which is that as my, my parents certainly were, were not a hard sell for why vaccines are important. They saw people, you know, dying of diphtheria or, you know, or tetanus and certainly measles and et cetera. Why people, be, you know, become deaf for mumps. So for them, it was easy. For me, it was easy because I grew up in the 50s and 60s when, you know, I also saw these diseases. But for young parents today, they, they don't see them. And, and so they say, well, I just don't really believe it. And so now you'll, you're starting to see sort of at least pockets of under-immunized people. You're starting to see outbreaks of, of whooping cough and, and measles and, and Hib disease. And maybe that's what has to happen. People have to sort of, again, be scared of the disease to, to get the vaccine. It's, it's too bad that we have to resort to human sacrifice to make the point. Does the perception of vaccines in the United States differ from that of other countries? Generally, this is going to surprise you. I would say generally we trust vaccines in this country more than in other countries. I mean, if you look at other developed countries, say in Western Europe, Switzerland, Italy, Austria, even in the Middle East like Israel, generally immunization rates are lower. I think there's a generally greater distrust and fear of vaccines, which is why, you know, about 60 to 65 people every year walk into our country infected with measles generally coming from Western Europe. I mean, if you look at the measles epidemic last year in the U.S., 2008, which was the biggest we've seen in more than a decade. I think almost all of those cases, the triggering case was someone who came from Western Europe. So I think actually we do well here and consider that we give far more vaccines here than are given in, in Western Europe because we choose to afford them. So I think, I think in general, we do very well here. It's why we have such low uh, rates of vaccine-preventable diseases. What's the perception of vaccines in developing countries? Do you happen to know? In developing countries, there is an intense desire for vaccines. As a general rule, they can't afford them. They know that these diseases cause permanent harm and death, and they are starving, literally starving for these vaccines. And, and so I think Bill and Melinda Gates have really cha- and Gavi have really changed the, the map in that, and that they, they finally are, are creating an infrastructure, you know, which allows for vaccines to be uh, given in a, in a country, meaning by creating you know, a, a cold chain and paramedical personnel that can give those vaccines. But now I think finally is allowing us to get vaccines into the developing world. It's been remarkable, actually. If you look at measles just in the last few years, has, has gone from 900,000 deaths a year to closer to 200,000. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu. Our guest is Dr. Paul Offit, Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a Professor of Pediatrics at the University 
University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. We're discussing the public perception of vaccines. What type of effect do you think media coverage has had on vaccine perceptions in our country? It's been awful. I, mean, I think the media actually have been incredibly irresponsible about covering vaccines. I mean, generally, they sort of use what I would say is the journalistic mantra of balance or the fallacy of balance, because it's really not balanced. For example, they'll cover you know, a story about the cervical cancer vaccine, Gardasil, that prevents human papillomavirus infection. And they'll have, you know, they'll have one person who says, look, here's all these wonderful data on how uh, this vaccine can prevent the only known cause of cervical cancer. And then we'll have somebody who says, well, you know, my child got it, then they, you know, then they had chronic fatigue syndrome, or then they had a blood clot or something like that, even though the data have clearly shown that the vaccine is, is remarkably safe. It's been in sort of 30,000 women for now seven years, and that just all gets lost in this kind of, you know, he said, she said thing they do. I think they generally tend to confuse the reader. And it doesn't represent the general sort of scientific or medical consensus, which in which case one would have a thousand people representing one side of the discussion and one person representing the other. Generally, all of the journalists have been pretty bad at this, but there's nothing like entertainment TV to, to really get this wrong. Oprah Winfrey, Larry King Live, I mean, they have just been awful on this issue. And I think it's confused a lot of parents and done a lot of harm. Do you feel that the medical community is doing enough to try to get the pro-vaccine message out? No, I don't. And I prefer to say not instead of pro-vaccine, pro-science. I mean, it really, you know, what is the scientific data that supports the use of particular vaccines? But you could argue that the small, the short-lived and, and thankfully short-lived smallpox vaccine program we had in this country sort of prior to our invasion of, of Iraq was an, an ill-fated program. I mean, I, I don't think it really, frankly, was well-supported at many levels. Similarly, the, the polio vaccine, we switched from the oral polio to the inactivated polio vaccine because the inactivated polio vaccine, I think, didn't have the side effect of paralysis that could be it was rare but still real with OPV. So I think pro-vaccine makes it sound like one is for vaccines independent of, of what of the vaccine strengths and weaknesses, and that that historically isn't true. I think what you want to be is pro-science. I mean, where do the data show? And I do think that we haven't been very good at this. I think it's hard to, it's hard to have the same passion. I think for vaccines and their safety and efficacy because, you know, when vaccines work, nothing happens. I mean, absolutely nothing happens. And, and it's hard to sort of find that parent who stands up and says, you know, you know, thank God my child got the Hib vaccine because therefore they weren't one of the 20,000 kids who got Hib meningitis or pneumonia or sepsis. It's hard to find that. It's much easier, obviously, to find somebody passionate who says, you know, my child was fine, they got the Hib vaccine, and now they have diabetes or, or whatever, you know, whatever the fear is, even if the data don't support that fear. So, no, it's an uphill struggle. I think scientists are also not trained to do this in, in any way. I mean, I think that when you're doing science or you're writing about science or you're speaking about science, it's very, very different than when you're asked to sort of consolidate, I think sometimes very sophisticated points of view into a soundbite. And it's, it's a little frightening. It's kind of counterintuitive and it's not much fun. So I think it, it's hard to get people who do good science to really stand up for that science. Now, as a scientist yourself, you have been quite prolific in your writing and your research. What kind of reception have you gotten from readers? It's been great. It surprises me, actually. When I wrote Autism's False Prophets, I, I, certainly there are people who, who believe that vaccines cause autism and from whom I would occasionally get angry letters. But I thought that that book would, would kind of galvanize those people to even higher levels of anger. It didn't happen. I, quite the opposite. I mean, I, every day I would say I get 10 to 15 emails from parents of children with autism who say, thank you. I never thought it was vaccines. Jenny McCarthy presumes to represent me, but she doesn't. 
and I appreciate your taking a stand on this. I mean, it really, you know, what you say makes sense. So it's been, what it's taught me that I wish I'd known, frankly, before I wrote the book is that there is kind of a silent majority of parents of children with autism out there who don't believe that the vaccine link at all. And you never hear from them. And, and the media never portrays them in any way. Whenever you hear about parents of children with autism, you always assume that they're sort of anti-vaccine, but that's certainly not true of many. You just unfortunately hear the media talk about them. Now, as a co-inventor of one of the rotavirus vaccines, some people in the anti-vaccine or anti-science movement, as you might say, have called you Dr. Profit and see you, pharmaceutical companies and public health agencies, as basically profiting off of vaccines or at minimum that you could not possibly have an objective or unbiased perspective. How do you respond to that type of criticism? I would say that they probably understand me about as well as they understand vaccines. I worked for 25 years on on rotaviruses, I mean, mostly trying to understand what part of the virus, the virulence genes, what were the genes that that evoked uh, neutralized, that coded for proteins that evoked neutralizing antibodies, which ultimately in that work ultimately led to a vaccine. The motivation for that was because rotavirus kills 2,000 children a day in in this world. And here we have certainly in our power in the United States, the technology to prevent that. That was always the motivating factor. And similarly, I stand up for the science of vaccines now because I see children suffering what are just a lot of misconceptions about this. So, so my motivations are always the same. I mean that I'm the co-inventor and that, you know, or co-patent holder that I could have made any sort of profit on this makes some people think, well, that's why he's saying vaccines are safe. But obviously the reason that I did the work and the reason that I say vaccines are safe is that I think that all benefits children. That's always been my motivation. And frankly, it's true of all of us. I mean, I think the CDC, the AAP, that's why we do what we do. We do it because we love children. That's why I went into pediatrics. I didn't go into pediatrics or science to make money. I mean, I don't think anybody does that, or at least not anybody in their right mind. Much, as you said, that there was some backlash against mandates for vaccines. Patients, I think, are really trying to get away from the paternalistic or dogmatic approach that physicians used to take in the past. I've seen some physicians who treat patients as their peers in the decision-making process, and they allow the public to do their own research by reading and searching the Internet. Do you think this is the best way to talk with the public about vaccines? This is the seminal question and the hardest one to answer. I mean, on the one hand, you're right. We've evolved. We want parents to be active participants in, in the health care decisions about their children. It's all true. But on the other hand, you know, it's, I don't think it's a value to cede your expertise. In other words, to say, because you have internet access, you know as much as I do. Because the fact of the matter is, is that, that if anybody really does their research on, say, getting the Hib vaccine, they'll get it every time. If anybody does their research looking at, at alternative schedules versus the, the schedule, the tested schedule, they'll get the tested schedule every time. If someone's done their research, quote unquote, and says, I don't want to get the hip vaccine, I think it is the doctor's duty as an advocate for the child to do everything you can to get that child vaccinated. Because if the parent chooses not to get vaccinated, they have just put their child in harm's way unnecessarily. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Paul Offit. We've been discussing the public perception of vaccines. I'm Dr. Jennifer Shu. You've been listening to a special segment focused on immunology on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And thank you for listening. <laughs>